folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another edition of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. Uh, this is episode 23 of the Jesus Society Podcast. It is part three of a, um, of a uh, I guess, a three-part um, little series on some things uh, from early church history. It's part two of a uh, of a look at uh, something we call the Christendom shift. So last week's episode was uh, was kind of long, and uh, uh, you know I, I, I try, <laughs> I try, I try, I try. Um, I don't always succeed, but I do try to keep it um, less than that. Um, but this the, today's episode may be a little longer too. So I've got a friend in Texas who mows his grass while he listens to this podcast, so he may have to walk slower. I think I may have talked about him before. Anyway, um, he's one of like three people who listen to this. <laughs> no, not really. No, we're we're still uh, we're still growing. We've we've got um, we've got more people all the time uh, listening to this. Um, uh, I, as I said, I said a few weeks ago, we still haven't hit all 50 states, which is kind of, would kind of be a kind of a neat goal. But, um, I, I'm really, honestly, uh, the way I'm doing this podcast, I'm letting God, this is God's thing. Um, he convinced me that this was something he wanted me to do. And so I'm doing it kind of out of obedience and, um, uh, whatever, whoever this reaches, um, however big it gets, I'm leaving that totally up to him. Um, and because it's his and he can, uh, he can do that. He can do with it whatever he wants to. So anyway, we're going to jump right in. Um, last week we started talking about, um, a series of shifts that took place beginning in the early, um, uh, the early fourth century, the early 300s AD that really changed the nature of the way churches functioned in the world, uh, pretty much from then on, and not necessarily for the better. Uh, church historians call this the Christendom shift, uh, and it's a it's a shift that took place from the period of pre-Christendom, um, which is the the early church period of the of basically the first three centuries, um, to what we call Christendom, which is everything after the early three hundreds A.D. and you know, if you if you pay attention to societal changes, most most societal changes don't happen overnight, right? It's not one big thing that totally changes everything immediately. Um, it, the thing changes happen over a period of time. So, and this is no different. It took roughly a hundred years for for most of the changes that we're talking out to kind of talking about to kind of become sort of crystallized. Um, and, and as you'll see, I think you'll see, I don't know that we'll talk about this specifically, but some of the things we talked about last week and this week, like if you really understand, if you really understand what's going on, it becomes really easy to see how things like the Crusades happen many, many, many centuries later. Um, like the seeds for all that were sown in in the heart of Christianity in the early 4th century. So, um, didn't happen overnight. It took about 100 years to kind of fully crystallize, um, mostly. Um, but if we were going to try to put a starting point on it, 
Um, it would probably be when Constantine became emperor. Um, before Constantine, Christianity was subversive and countercultural, and in many ways it was, it was hard to be a Christian. And within a century of Constantine, it's punishable by death not to be a Christian. After Constantine's time, Christianity has had a huge impact on mainstream culture, and that, in turn, changed Christianity. And we talked about Constantine quite a bit in last week's episode, so I'm not going to lay that, that, that ground again. Um, but there are about eight ways in which Christianity changed after Constantine. And you can, you can, the, the way we, the way we discover this is that we, we go back and we read the early, the, the church, his, church writers of the first, second, third century. And then we read the church writers of the fourth, fifth, sixth century. And we notice there's something that's changed. These Christians are talking about different things. They're, they're not talking about the same things the same way. They're, they're dealing with problems later that they didn't have to. So you see, you can see these changes by just so, sort of compare. And I haven't done all this. Um, there, there are some scholars and church historians who are way smarter than me that have done this, and I stand on their back, right? So as we get into this today, if you have not listened to last week's episode, uh, if you're just tuning in here today for the first time, I would really suggest that you go back and listen to last week's episode first because there's some background stuff there that in last week's episode that's that's kind of important. I think you'll understand the stuff we talk about today much better if you listen to that first. Okay. Now, one other thing that I mentioned last week, and I want to mention it again because I want to give credit where credit is due. I am I am deeply indebted. Now, there's some other places, right? I, that I've that I have sort of put this together from, but. Uh, the bulk of this rests on the work of a guy named Alan Kreider. Um, he was a an Anabaptist missionary scholar, um, and I mentioned him last week. I'm, I just want to mention him again because I want everybody to know um, that he has done the lion's share of this work. Okay, um, he passed away just a few years ago, but he wrote a number of books and articles. Um, he was he was a church historian, but he was also very concerned about mission, um, which makes him somewhat unique. Um, a lot of scholars are just scholars and they, you know, they don't have their hands in the, in the sort of nitty gritty real life world of, of Christian missionaries and ministers, right? Um, he did. When I was in graduate school, I read, and this is what kind of started all this for me, but I read an article that he wrote and it was, it was really, really engaging to me. Um, and it had, in my mind, it had a lot of implications, um, and it sounded convincing, but I wasn't going to know really until, you know, you don't believe everything you read all the time, right? This sounded too good to be true, and I wanted to know whether I could really believe everything he was saying. So I went back, and I read for myself all the early church writers that he referenced. I wanted to see did they really say what he said he said? Uh, you know, is there more to it? Um, is he overblowing the case for all this? And what I found when I, and it was a lot of work, uh, and I actually wrote a paper um, uh, based on that. Um, but um, not only was Alan Kreider right in everything he said, 
there was actually more evidence for these kind of changes than he included. I'm sure he knows it. I'm sure he knew about them. But anyway, so I have some some personal kind of engagement with a lot of this stuff, um, which is why I, th- I think it's important that we here in the 21st century understand some of this stuff. And that's why we're talking about it. So um, I will put a link in uh, today's show notes uh, for the book that Kreider wrote in 2007 that 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 kind of sums up m- most of this stuff pr- pretty well. Uh, again, I've some, some of the stuff I'm getting from some other sources, but but if you want a one-stop shop to try to dig into this deeper for yourself, that's probably the book. Uh, the book is called The Change of Conversion and the Origin of Christendom. And um, I'll actually put a link <laughs> in today's episode. I listed it last week under the resources for last week's episode, but I didn't. I failed to make it a clickable link. I mean, you can find it, but uh, I will make sure it's a link today. Okay. So last week, hang on, coffee. I got to get some coffee before I launch into this. Ah, very good. Okay. So last week. We talked about the first four shifts that took place after Constantine as the church moved into what scholars and missiologists call Christendom. The first four were in the areas of vantage point, attraction, um, power, and what we might call sanctions. And and again, last week, um, you can go listen to that and, and learn all about that. The fifth shift is what we might call enculturation. So... Christianity became very much at home in society um, after the 4th century. So so much so that it really lost the capacity to make a distinctive contribution to society. So in pre-Christendom, the early church years, uh, especially in the 1st and 2nd centuries, one of the words that Christians habitually used to describe themselves was the Greek word peroikoi, Okay, and that word is translated as resident aliens. Okay, so Christians were conscious of being at home in this world, but not fully at home um, wherever they lived. Um, there's a there's a there's a letter. It's it's called the epistle epistle to Diognetus. Uh, you know what an epistle is, right? Uh, the epistle is an epistle is the wife of an apostle. No, no, no. Just kidding. Just kidding. Old preacher joke. Sorry. Um, epistle means letter, if you don't know. So there's a, a letter of Diognetus, okay? Um, the epistle of Diognetus. Uh, we don't really know who, the, the author's name. We don't really know who wrote it. Um, but that author said that for Christians of his time period, every foreign country is a fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. Um, and so over time, to kind of maintain this, this sort of sense of distinctiveness in the midst of a larger society, of being at home in the world but not really at home, um, the churches developed um, some, some careful pre-baptism teaching and training um, things that they did. And that training, which, which could last for several years, okay, they were very careful about making sure People knew what they were getting into when they when they signed on to be a Christian, right? And that training imparted to these apprentice Christians, if you will, the stories of the Bible, the teachings of Jesus, and and kind of the the ethics and norms 
of the Christian community, what it, what it was going to be like to live as a Christian, okay? Um, oftentimes, an experienced Christian who served as something of a, of a spiritual godparent to the, to the initiate uh, would accompany the, the, the bas- baptismal candidate at these teaching sessions. So they were relational and not just educational. It wasn't like going off to lecture every day, right? Um, so that's the, that was the way that the new Christians were equipped to be disciples in a, in a church that was attempting to enculturate the faith with fidelity, okay? Being at home in a society while at the same time remaining true to Christianity's distinctive convictions, okay? Before the fourth century, Christians consistently would weigh which practices or symbols of the wider society that they could appropriate and Christianize and which they should really repudiate and, and not have anything to do with, okay? But in the Christendom after the fourth century, as the church grew even more rapidly and began to kind of infiltrate even the, the imperial elite, a lot of the Roman aristocrats were, that were coming into the church um, were uncomfortable with a lot of those century-old customs and traditions. So an example of that was a Roman administrator in North Africa named Volusian. Um, he was cautiously exploring Christianity. He was kind of interested, but he wasn't, wasn't sure. Well, he met Augustine, who explained to him the, the theological implications of Christianity, but Volusian had some, like he got that, but he had some political reservations about Christianity. To him, Roman governance, and, and again, he was a Roman administrator, right? But to him, Roman governance, governance required a, a harsh and kind of firm hand. And he just couldn't understand how on earth you could function as a Christian within the political realm of Rome if you were no, if you were no longer allowed to counter evil with evil. So for him, uh, the idea of, say, giving up your coat to someone who wanted to take it from you, as Jesus said, rather than seek vengeance and punishment for it, that kind of attitude just didn't mesh with the interests of the state. And what's really fascinating is Augustine essentially told him, and this will tell you, you can see just how much Christianity's changed by this point. Um, Augustine essentially told him that the teachings of Jesus referred to more to the inner dispositions of the heart rather than to political behavior. So Volusian, Augustine said, could manage the political side of things by what he called, by what Augustine called, a sort of kindly harshness, <laughs> whatever on earth that is. Um, it's kind of like what we what we talked about last week when 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 I got off on a little rant about Christian businesses and how sometimes they do some very unchristian things and shrug it off by saying, well, it's just business, right? You know, it's that sort of thing. Like Augustine, Augustine was given permission to Volusian to, you know, you can still be kind of harsh and, and sort of cold and fierce in your, and, and, you know, because it's just be a little kinder than maybe normal, you know, and that'll be okay. You see, that, that incident illustrates the kind of accommodation to culture that was taking place throughout the Christian church in the century after Constantine. And on point after point, Christian leaders 
um, smoothed off the, the, the sharp corners of the Christian tradition, if you want to think of it that way, so that Christianity could fit neatly into a society that would be dominated by um, a lot of non-Christian elite, right? So in pre-Christendom, uh, baptismal candidates were instructed about how to live and love like Jesus, how to love God and love like God. But in the fourth century, the teaching for baptismal candidates concentrate, concentrated not so much on how to live the teachings of Jesus, but on how to avoid the errors of heresy. Now, does any of that sound familiar? Because it does to me. Um, for years, I have seen a lot of our churches um, you know, somebody becomes a Christian, they're baptized, and they put them through some sort of um, new converts class. And I've done this in my early days in ministry. Heaven help me, I did this. We instruct the, our new converts far more about doctrinal correctness rather than living the teachings of Jesus. And I'm not saying doctrinal correctness isn't important, but, but we've tended to act like that was the only thing that was important. Very much like... Um, what happened in early Christendom. And, and this is why, see, this is why for me this stuff is so important because I see some of these changes that took place in, in the early 4th century and I see the tentacles in them that have lingered all the way into today. I still see some of this stuff in our churches. And I, I, like, I think that's a problem. Anyway, moving on. So the next shift... Um, which would be number six, I think, if you're if you're counting. In the Christendom of the fourth century and later, the role of Jesus was kind of transformed and muted, um, morphed from the good shepherd who was teacher of all Christians, more to the exalted Lord whose teachings was only applicable to a kind of a minority of perfect Christians. And here's how that worked. In pre-Christendom, Christians tended to, to, to depict Jesus as the good shepherd, as healer, as teacher. And that reflected a, a, a central theme in early Christianity, the life-giving power of Jesus' life and teaching. But after Constantine, Christians um, underemphasized his humanness and his gentleness, and they tended to depict him more in words and images that looked an awful lot like the, the Roman imperial cult. Um, Jesus, the good shepherd, tended to disappear, and in his place came Christ. The, uh, the word that they used was pantocrator, um, which, which was kind of the word for almighty ruler of all. Okay, Now, don't misunderstand here. Jesus is almighty, and he is ruler of all. Okay, and the early Christians understood that. It wasn't that they didn't understand that. They did. They knew that. So it wasn't that that imagery is untrue. But the problem is that in the in the early fourth century in Christendom, they they kind of pushed aside that softer, gentler, loving side of Jesus. Jesus as good shepherd, and they only emphasized Jesus as Almighty Ruler. And the truth is that Jesus is both. And those two parts have always existed side by side. Jesus is the one of whom Isaiah will say, um, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. 
He's also the rider on the white horse in Revelation, who who comes, um, you know, with a lot of blood. Okay. Um, in Christendom, Jesus was thought of in the same terms as the Roman emperor, fierce and powerful ruler of all. And in the church's imagery, uh, their their iconography, he was even dressed up to look. He looked like an emperor. He had the the imperial halo around his head. Well, there's a lot more we could say about that, um, but we're going to move on, um, or this is going to run too long again. But the point is that the Christendom shift changed the way the church viewed Jesus, and that to me is an issue. And I'm going to talk about why that's still an issue today. I think um, when we get kind of to the end of the these these shifts. Um, so moving on, the seventh shift. Um, concerns the transformation of Christian assemblies from humble gatherings that uh, edified uh, Christians, and we talked about that word, I think, last week uh, or the week before, um, to grand assemblies that attracted um, um, outsiders for the purpose of evangelism. Um, so in pre-Christendom churches, assemblies, as we've said before, were generally small they were held in homes, and by the standards of the later fourth century, they were pretty unimpressive. They weren't they weren't trying to impress the masses, but rather to just commune with God and with one another and to equip Christians as individuals and communities to live their faith attractively in the world. In Christendom, Christian assemblies became services, draped in ceremony whose social function changed dramatically. They became public. Um, They were held in glorious, ornately decorated basilicas. Uh, Attendance was at times compulsory, and some people were irritated at being forced to be there. Uh, Others were eager to be entertained. And not surprisingly, people misbehaved. Um, There's a record in in some of the Syrian churches, um, the deacons would circulate in the services to ensure that the people would not whisper, nor slumber, nor laugh, nor nod. And according to uh, early church historian Alan Kreider, who a lot of this is based on, uh, the services, like the buildings, were designed to move the congregation emotionally, to give them an overwhelming experience of God who was being revealed to them in the awe-inspiring rituals. Hmm. In the early years of Christendom, um, those those elaborate services didn't exist. Um, oh, sorry. In the early years of Christendom, I'm, I'm looking at my notes here, and I'm and I'm I see early, and I think early church. All right. In the early years of Christendom, those those elaborate services um, tried to attract unbaptized, um, we would call them seekers today, they called them catechumens, okay, Um, to try to get them to agree to be baptized. And to try to evangelize them there in the assembly, they would, they would, um, they had these um, gifted rhetorical preachers, in other words, professional clergy. Uh, They had grand liturgies and the symbols and artifacts that were society's highest indicators of value, um, gold jewels and imperial, imperial imagery. Okay, one scholar has noted that um, 
more and more, the liturgy changed shape from the simple celebration of the Lord's Supper as it had been celebrated in the houses of the first Christians to a court ceremonial or a royal reception. So a lot changed there just in the, uh, the way, if you read the book that I, that I suggested a few weeks ago, Going to Church in the First Century, that little, neat little book, you'll see really a big different thing um, from what that looked like to what we're describing here in Christian. Okay, So the last shift that took place, number eight, has to do with what we might call missional style. So, and, and you have to understand the, the, the Roman Empire, you know, the, the stuff that, were, that was going on right in the center of the Roman Empire and the stuff that was going on way out on the, on the fringes, on the edge of the empire, they weren't always the same, right? It wasn't always the same thing. So on the fringes of the, of the Roman Empire where Christianity still had a foothold, even in the 4th century, it often looked a lot like it did in pre-Christendom. But in the center, you know, this is where a lot of the stuff that we're talking about took place. Okay, so everywhere except on the on the fringes of the Christian territories, the church pretty much moved from mission to maintenance. And so here's what I mean by that: in early um, pre-Christendom, in the early church of the first three centuries, mission was essential to the identity of the church. Even though the early Christians actually wrote about mission very little. They didn't talk about mission a lot, but you can see it in the topics that the Christians dealt with in their writings. And what I mean is um, a significant a, a significant portion of early Christian writings um, were what they called apologies. Okay, it's it's not unlike our word apologetics. If you if you if you've been a Christian for a long time, you probably know something about apologetics. It's um, apologetics deals with trying to make a defense, a reason for why we believe certain things. You know, a logical argument, um, in the in the hopes of sort of helping us have conversations with non Christians and helping them see what we see. Right. So a lot of the early Christian writings were what they called apologies, um, which showed that they took their pagan and Jewish neighbors seriously, and they were they were working to find ways to converse with them um, and, and move them toward Christianity. It was very mission-focused, right? Um, there's a, there's, a, um, there's a, a document that comes out of uh, North Africa in the late 240s A.D. Um, it's a collection of uh, 120 precepts that Cyprian prepared to, to kind of guide the church in Carthage. Okay, 120 precepts, how to live your life, how to engage the world, things like that. And in it, he included a number of things like, for example, uh, we must labor not with words but with deeds. Um, and another one, he said that widows and orphans ought to be protected. Okay. What's interesting is that nowhere in those 120 precepts did he admonish the faithful to evangelize. So does that mean that evangelism wasn't important to the early church? Absolutely not. So how do we know that? Well, we, we know that because the early church was growing rapidly. And, and it was growing because Christians were living attractive lives. They were alert to the concerns of their non-Christian neighbors, and they were 
Um, one writer said they were chattering unselfconsciously to them about their faith. But they were doing those things so naturally that they didn't need Cyprian to lecture them to do it, to do it. So that just doesn't show up in his 120 precepts. You know, sometimes we only write about things that are that are not going well, right? We don't bother to write much about things that are going fantastic. Unless, of course, we want to try to market and franchise our religious successes and make money from them. Five easy steps to dramatic church growth. It can be yours. I jest, but not really. That stuff is just ick, right? Ick. Anyway, in Christendom after the 4th century, it ceased to be natural to be missional. Uh, The church continued to grow, um, but it grew because it was aided by um, imperial favor and legislation, which we talked about last week. Uh, And finally, by the 6th century, it came to include all the inhabitants of the empire. And we talked about that last week, I think. Um, those who uh, held out against conversion um, were bludgeoned into conformity. Um, there was a law passed in, um, in 529 A.D. by Roman Emperor Justinian. And that, this law that he passed symbolized kind of the end of this process and also indicated the difficulties that had been faced. One of the things the law observed... Um, was that some people who had been baptized, uh, quote, have been found possessed by the error of unholy and abominable pagans um, and doing things that moved the benevolent God to wrath, unquote. Um, some people were even teaching the insanity of the holy pagans, the unholy pagans to others. And in so doing, they were destroying the instructed person's souls. Okay, that's what that's text from this letter or from this law. So the fix for that. So they were there was a concern that um, there's a lot of Christians that aren't fully Christians, and they're you know they're engaged in much as much of the world the activities as they are Christian activities, and they're you know they're not doing all this well. The fix from the emperor for that condition that, that his law enacted, this is, this is what he decided to do, is to fix this problem. Anyone who had not yet been baptized was to, was to approach the churches along with their wives and their children and all the household belonging to them and be taught and baptized. So, <laughs> and, their, and their children, their young children, were all to be baptized immediately. So, the fix for all this is we got to make everybody a Christian. And if that weren't bad enough, anyone who resisted that law was not to be allowed to own property and were to be abandoned in poverty besides being subjected to some unspecified appropriate penalties. (laughs) So by imperial law, which made everyone an Orthodox Christian, Mission was unnecessary. But even in Christendom, mission kept intruding. Um, Pastorally astute people were aware of the fact that many people in the church now had been lightly Christianized, poorly catechized, scarcely converted. Uh, Baptized Christians continued to engage in underground pagan practices 
which they combine right along a, a, attendance at mass. You know, um, we hear, I like country music. <laughs> and one of the things that frustrates me about country music is you hear people talk about, you hear songs a lot of times talk about, um, you know, going out on the town and, and drinking and carousing and, and trying to take your girlfriend home and, you know, you know, and then getting up to go to church on Sunday morning. And that's that's just part of being a good Southern Christian. I, no, folks, no, no. So one last little quote here. Um, Augustine said, um, that, and this is just telling, a church full of people um, was certain to contain a large number of depraved persons. Um, very different, very different from the first three centuries. Okay, so that's the second four of these shifts. So you now had all eight of them. So why are these things important? I think there's an awful lot of this stuff that we're still dealing with today. And I think I said last week, history is cyclical, you know, or as one of my friend puts it, um, and I love this, he says, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. I, I like that. That's good. Uh, if you want to know what things look like, like be a student of history. In the church after the fourth century, we became a church increasingly um, comfortable with making accommodations to the culture around us, at, at, least in, at least in Western Christianity. Now, when I say Western Christianity, you need to understand um, there were... Christianity had spread into Asia and um, the Middle East, uh, even China, um, very early on, very early on, okay? When I talk about Western Christianity or Western churches, we're talking basically about the Roman Empire and European churches. Um, North American churches, uh, North American Christianity is, is descended from the Roman um, European Christianity, okay? Um, Eastern churches would have existed outside of the Roman Empire. There were churches in parts of Africa that were not a part of the Roman Empire, uh, the Middle East, Asia. Um, the, the Western church was the center of society and beca- began taking on the values of the larger society m- more and more and kind of suppressing uh, traditional Christian values that, that were held by the early church. I think we struggle mightily with this in the United States. And I'm not even I'm not even talking about the problem of conflating Christianity with American patriotism as though as though those two were one and the same. And by the way, let me just say something about that. It, it is perfectly fine in my book. Uh, I, I know there there are some Christians out there that that seem to want to say, um, if you're a Christian, you just absolutely cannot be a, a patriot of your own country. I think that's poppycock. It is perfectly fine in my book to be an American patriot as an, and a Christian, to be, to be proud of, um, let me say it this way, I take pride in the ideals of our country as espoused in our Constitution, even while I recognize that those ideals have not always been realized. But here's the thing. As a Christian, our true citizenship is the kingdom of God. We're at home here, but we're not really at home here. 
that is the same stance the early church took. They were involved in their world. They participated in commerce. They built lives and families here, but they never lost sight of the fact that they were resident aliens. And for a lot of us, and I'm including myself here, we struggle to live as resident aliens. We are we are too in love with our wealth and our homes and our recreation and our status, and, and we could go on and on, can't we? There's a lot about this world that we love, and it's it gets all of our attention, it gets all of our money, it gets all of our effort. Um, we're not, we often don't look much different than anyone around us who's not a Christian. Um, we're not distinctive people unless you count that one or two hours on Sunday when we go to church, if we're not out on a lake or at a ball game, that is. We divorce at the same rate as non-Christians. Um, these days we drink just as much as non-Christians. And, and, and there's a reason one of the chief objections to Christianity is the la- in the last hundred years has been that the church is full of hypocrites. That's not always fair, but there is an element of truth to that. And non-Christians see it, and they realize it. And yeah, that has become a trump card that people play sometimes. I know that. But we're deceiving ourselves if we don't see that there is a real element of truth in that. We are just way too comfortable here, and it shows. And the way the world lives is often the way that we live. The way the world treats people is often the way that we treat people. In the Christendom church, I'm kind of shifting a little bit, they lost the gentle shepherd side of Jesus and began seeing him only as ruler and king. And we have done that too. And that is why so many people still cannot see God as anyone other than someone who is watching every move that they make. The harsh, unyielding judge who only looks on us with contempt because we're not measuring up. And if you think we've moved beyond that, now that we've discovered grace, you're not talking to enough people because I have conversations all the time with Christians who tell me that they hope that they've done enough good to go to heaven when they die, but they're not just not really sure. They don't believe, not really that God loves them. Oh, they believe God loves the world because they've read it in the Bible but they're not altogether sure that he loves them. They tend to see God only as a harsh, almighty ruler and judge, not as a loving father. Now, I know that there are some people who have so bought into Jesus, the gentle shepherd, the loving God, that they've lost sight of Jesus as king, and that's a problem too. I know that. Much of progressive Christianity, and there are a lot of problems with progressive Christianity, but much of progressive Christianity um, is is so comfortable with Jesus as their buddy that they no longer see him as king. And I think I think it's a pendulum swing um, for some people away from where we've been for the most most of the last fifteen hundred years. The point is, we have got to hold on to both of those parts of God. He is a gentle king. He is an almighty shepherd. And to emphasize one of those sides with, without the other is to have an incomplete picture of the God who loves you deeply and who wants very much to be your Lord. The Christendom church lost that. 
we can't. Okay, so let's talk about the, the lavish, ornate, orchestrated assemblies designed more to convert pagans than to transform Christians for mission. Now, I've got to be careful with this one uh, because many of you are part of big churches with highly orchestrated assemblies pretty much designed to attract non-Christians or at least make them feel comfortable. And I, and I think the real problem here, and this is, this is just me, okay, is that I think we've lost the vision for what Christian gatherings are supposed to be for. Building strong, robust, loving Christians who can go out into the world for the whole rest of the week and live like Jesus and love like Jesus. The assembly is primarily for Christians. And sure, we'll have some non-Christians there. That was true even in Paul's day. Um, but Paul's idea is that if we're, if we're edifying one another, if we're building each other into strong, loving Christians, um, if, we're, if we're speaking on behalf and at the behest of God, which is, which is by the way, what biblical prophecy is, um, and, and Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 14, 24, and 25, which is why I brought that up here. Like if we're doing all those things um, and, and an unbeliever comes in amongst us, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, 24, and 25, that that unbeliever is convicted by all, is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart will be revealed. And as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. In other words, the assembly is for growing Christians toward maturity and missional attractiveness. And there are some seekers who will see God in that. But the assembly is not primarily for them. I also think we, we, we tend to be too programmed and scheduled uh, in most of our church gatherings today. Um, and I know, I know, okay, I know that when you've got 200 or 500 or 1,500 people, you almost, you almost have to be. But there's a, there's a relational mutuality that I think is important that we're missing in that kind of overly orchestrated, programmed ceremony. Um, in, the, in the verse right after the ones that I just read, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul says, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn a teaching, a revelation, uh, another tongue or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. And there's our word edification or oikodume that we talked about last week. If we really believe, here's the thing, here's the thing. If we really believe that God is moving in all of our lives, okay, if every Christian can access God for themselves and God is going to lead them and guide them and do things in their lives and through their lives, if we really believe that, then I want to hear about that. If God is doing something amazing in your life, even if he's just teaching you something, I want to, I want to hear about that from you. Your story is just as valid as mine. And, and here's... here's Here's a problem. You know, we, we read the Bible and we see all these great men and women doing these wonderful things and we, and we think, my gosh, God did wonderful things through those people back then. But he just doesn't, he doesn't do those kinds of things now. Yes, he does, folks. Yes, he does. The only reason we don't hear about it is because we never talk to each other. 
Like we don't, we don't create space for us to tell our stories. And, and for a lot of us, we don't even expect it, so we don't even see it in our, in our own lives, right? But I want to hear your story. I want to hear how God is moving in your life. That is instructive to me. It helps me learn to perceive how God might be moving in my own life. And when we turn everyone into a spectator who has to be spoon-fed their week, weekly dose of godly good news by, by some highly trained minister and highly paid ministry professional, we miss an awful lot of what God is doing among us. And again, I don't, I don't know how you do that in a congregation of, of even 200. But that's why I think smaller gatherings are so very important. The early church lost a lot when they moved into the, into the cathedral. And while, while I know that big buildings aren't the only problem, and, they're, and they may not even be the biggest problem, I'm not completely sure that we can have the kind of community that God really wants us to have without getting substantially and intentionally smaller. And let me just say that there is, there is a much longer conversation to be had about all these issues here. Um, I, and I, I have been involved in thinking about all this stuff and talking to loads and loads and loads of other people about all these things for years and years and years. And the, and the issues involved in all this, they are legion. But I'm going to stop and leave it there right now. So one more thing, another, another sip of coffee. I drink coffee faster when I'm not talking than when I than when I am. <laughs> One more thing. Um, in, involving the, the move in Christendom from mission to maintenance, from reaching the lost to converting the saved. I think the earliest Christians would be baffled at the idea of a church full of people whose only religious activity is coming to services on Sunday to basically be spectators to the Sunday show. Those of us who have spent significant time in ministry talk often about the challenges involved in mobilizing our people to actually participate themselves in ministry. It is a lot like trying to push a rock with a limp spaghetti noodle. It is hard work. And I am convinced, ask your ministers, ask your elders, like, they think about this. They talk about this. This is a common thing. How do we get people off the bloody pews to do more and engage people and live like Jesus for themselves and not just give money so that, so that we paid professionals can do it, can do all the ministry work, right? That's backward, backward. I am convinced that our problems in that today are directly connected to the Christendom shift it wasn't a problem before the early 4th century, but it has been a problem ever since. In my own tradition, we have had a tendency toward quick conversions. Um, boy, we want to get people in the water as fast as they can. And we, and we, we, have, we have at times, we, like it almost, it almost sounds like we're, and, and I've done this, okay? In my early days in ministry, I'm as guilty of this as anybody but we, we sell baptism as a get-out-of-hell-free card that gets people into a safe state with God. I wish you could see all the air quotes in that last sentence. And then we spend years engaged in the maddening and utterly bizarre task 
of trying to convince those people who, who, we, who we have already assured that they've already received the chief benefit of Christianity to actually live their lives for Jesus. And as a result, we tend to have a good number of people in our churches who, just like in early Christendom, are lightly Christianized and scarcely converted. They tend to think that just going to church is all Jesus wants them to do. Um, I, I may have told this story in this podcast before. I'm going to tell it again because it's it's really poignant at this point. In the in the early uh, right after I was baptized years and years ago, this was like the early '90s. I was in a church, and there were there was there were two young people. Um, they were in their late high school years, so they were moving toward adulthood, but they weren't adult yet. They were really good friends with the um, the the preacher's son and daughter here, and they started coming. You know, they started coming to 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 church outings and events and things and and I got to know them and they were they were a neat couple. I won't tell you their names cuz this may get out. I don't want I don't want to be talking about them um without their knowledge. Um the first time that they actually came to church. We had known them for a while. Um you know, the, I say we the the preacher and his kids and his family and myself and a few others. And we were just loving on them and and just trying to encourage them. You know, um, the first Sunday they came to church, she wore a dress that was, um, it was too short. It really was. I get showed a lot more of her than anybody wanted to see. But you know, what, what do you do? What do you do when new Christians come along and they still kind of act a little bit like Christians? You, if they're moving towards Jesus, you, you handle that gently. And they were moving toward Jesus, they, but they hadn't even been baptized. I don't, as I, as I recall, they hadn't even given their life to Jesus yet. They were moving in that direction. They came to church. After church, there was an elderly lady in that church who basically got a hold of that girl and backed her into a corner and read her the riot act about her dress, and it so upset her that the two of them never came through those doors again. We could, we could not get them to come to church after that. And I was talking to the preacher about this, this lady, and he said, you know, she has been under the sound of the gospel for 30 years, or it might have been 40, or it might have been, I, I can't remember the exact number, but it, for well beyond longer than he was there, she'd been coming to church every Sunday, doing her thing, but he said, honestly, she doesn't look any different today than, than she did then. She doesn't act any different. She has not, her, her religion hadn't changed her at all from day one. And you know, in a lot of churches, if people hang around long enough like that, we'll make them elders. We will. We will. I am convicted that our problem in all this is that we don't disciple people nearly enough before we baptize them. You know, the early church had these, these, long, um, these long teaching training things, right? We try to get it done as quick as possible. I had, a, I had a guy tell me one time that if you're in, 
If you're in line at the airport and the person in front of you isn't, isn't a Christian, you have an obligation to try to get them converted before you get to the front of the line. Insanity. Insanity. That is not how people change. Um, and because we're too impatient to wait for people to get totally surrendered to Jesus, we've developed all these little clever tactics and techniques to overcome their objections to, to baptism or, or if you're not a baptizing type, the, your sinner's prayer. Whatever. Like we, we, We've come up with all these little clever arguments to try to get people to, to make a decision and do, do what we want them to do so that we can, you know, that, baptism, you know, seals the deal. We don't get to put a notch on our belt until we get them in the water. That sounds crass, doesn't it? And many, 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 maybe most ministers or elders or Christians aren't like that, and I know that. But some are, and they do damage to the cause of Christ. The answer is we've got to slow down. We've got to spend time with people, often months and sometimes years, loving them, teaching them, eating with them, inviting them into our lives and joining them in theirs, and living Jesus before them. And they don't go to the baptistry until they are 100% on board, on mission, surrendered to Jesus. And they're asking us, like the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts 8, look, here's some water. Why can't I be baptized? I stopped co coaxing and conjoling people into the baptistry years ago. I want, I want them to fall in love with Jesus. And when they do that, baptism is the is just going to happen it just is because here's the thing you don't have to cajole or prompt or push a surrendered disciple of jesus to obey jesus they're already there and because they're already fully surrendered to jesus when they're baptized all you have to do from there on out is help them figure out how god created them their identity in him the specific way that god has poured himself into them what their gifts are and how God might want to use their gifts best to love others into a relationship with him. And that is a whole lot easier than trying to push or drag or pull them uh, uphill into that afterwards. So we're at the end here of this little three-part church history conversation. And we've gone along again. To, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, Mow your grass slowly if you're listening to this when, when you mow your grass. Um, as we move um, on to something else next week, uh, before we do that, I, like I want to, I want to say something to sort of tie this all together. These last three conversations, and I, and I really want you to hear this: God's church, as He designed it, is wonderful. His kingdom is the most heavenly thing that you can experience on earth. Living in relationship with God's redeemed and transformed people is simple, it's safe, it's energizing, and it is so very attractive to outsiders. God's power in us to be his arms and his feet and his hands and using us to bless the world is one of the greatest adventures that you will ever live. God's ways are perfect and they lead to all of his blessings. And not just for us. Yes, for us, but not just for us, for the world. So please, please don't cheapen that or diminish it
by settling for any, uh, for, by settling for less in any of the ways that the church of the fourth century did. Don't do it. Please. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. Uh, as always, we'd, we'd appreciate it if you tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Please visit our Facebook group um, for the Jesus Society. Honestly, we're, we're not doing a lot there, and that's my fault. I'm, I'm, I, I kind of suck at managing a Facebook group. <laughs> I just do. Um, but get on there and, and engage. Um, there's a lot of good people in that group. Um, and you can you can suggest topics or, 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 or for episodes you can ask questions. But what I really would love to see is us getting on there and sharing our stories. Um, how, what's God doing in your life? How's he? What's he teaching you? How's he? How's he relating to you? How's he? How's he loving you? I'd love to see that kind of stuff. Okay, check out our website thejesussociety.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, you are greatly loved.